The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that they had any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. All right. So, what's going on, right? We're in the book of Acts. Um, Acts is an account uh, by Luke to his dear friend Theophilus about the events and the evidence of the Spirit of God acting within the early church. Jesus has resurrected. There's a group of believers that he left behind. He charged them with pressing forward. And the book of Acts is a follow-up to Luke's gospel, which was also written to Theophilus, telling us the story of what went on in the early church. That group, it was a group of Jewish men and women at the beginning that had been following Jesus around for some time, most likely, that started to experience supernatural and miraculous movements of God in and among them. There were people getting healed. They were given a boldness and a confidence Needs were being met. And Gentiles and other people that lived in the city of Jerusalem and around and the nearby areas were starting to gather in curiosity. Up until we're in chapter four, but several times now in the book of Acts it says 
People were added to their number daily. Because God was doing something that not only benefited them, it was attractive to everyone else around. Community was happening. Healing was happening. Freedom. Restoration. All taking place in this community of people that were taking the scriptures seriously and had adjusted their lives accordingly. They were devout men and women that believed fully that there was a God, singular, that was over all things. They believed he was the creator, the most high, the eternal, everlasting. He was provider, protector, healer, shepherd, that he was all-knowing, that he was all-present, that he was loving, that he was just, that he was fair, that he was living, he was active, that he was perfect. Several of the things we sang about in our songs this morning. They believed these things. They didn't just say them. They believed it in the depths of their hearts. And they also believed that Jesus, who had just been among them, was God's very son walking on this earth, providing us an example of how God intended for us to live and paving a way for us to live in that same power and spirit while we're here on this earth. Because of their belief, their lives and their actions were guided by that. And so far in the book, we've had several examples. Okay, so I'm going to put some of these up on the screen. The first one, um, they, wa- they waited when Jesus said wait. They believed him. And so when he told them to wait for a pr- coming Holy Spirit, they waited. So chapter 1 starts with them waiting. We move into chapter 2. Their hearts were prepared to receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't just sit and wait and do nothing. They were praying, and they were studying, and they were seeking the Lord during that whole time. And because of that, their hearts were ready that when God sent the Spirit, they could receive it. They stayed devoted to that teaching and to prayer and to Regular fellowship. In chapter 3, they started experiencing supernatural miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. They were able to speak in one tongue and people could hear it in multiple tongues or languages. So it would be like me right now speaking in English, but those of you that your native language is not English you would be hearing it in your native tongue. That's miraculous. And that was, that was happening at this time. They recognized that these miracles corresponded to promises of God that were found in their scriptures. So the, the part of the Bible we call the Old Testament all the books before the Gospels, 
were Israel's scriptures at the time, and they were already seeing connections from God's promises there to what was taking place in and among them in Jerusalem at their present time. They trusted God so fully that they walked into circumstances that put their lives and their safety at risk. In chapter 4, it tells a story of persecution. They were being ridiculed. In fact, some of them had already been put in jail. They continued faithfully despite those threats. And they continually sought God's instruction, his power, and his wisdom through prayer through fellowship, and through the studying of scriptures. Just before this section that we read, there's a beautiful prayer by the body of believers asking God to fill them with the Holy Spirit. And it says, after they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Family, that's what I want. I hope that's what we all want. I hope that when you read sentences like that in the scriptures, there is a piece of your heart that says, yes, please. And I believe that what Luke is going to do, or trying to do here with these few stories after that sentence is he's trying to tell us that there's a, there's a recipe here. And hopefully, we'll start to see that and we will crave it enough that we are willing to make some changes in order to accomplish it. So, in chapter 4, verses 32 and 37... It says they were one in heart and mind, and they started doing something strange. They started selling things and bringing it to the apostles, laying it at their feet, and trusting that that would go to benefit their community. Because God was uniting and molding them together in a way that they started to see one another as extensions of themselves. And if you're suffering or you're lacking, then I'm suffering and I'm lacking. And I can't have that. So if they had excess, they started selling it or giving it away. They made changes in their lives so that as a community, they could be one in heart and mind. They could walk together, that they didn't have needs among them. They sought to be a covenant people. Now, covenant is a term that we don't use a lot in modern culture, especially in America. Right? But this is, a, this is a very real thing for the Jewish people living at this time and, and still today. 
In the Old Testament, there's covenants taking place and a theme of a covenant between God and man um, constantly flowing through the scriptures. We talked about how already that they, they are seeing this connection to those Old Testament scriptures. They're attaching them to themselves and they are attempting to become that very thing. The covenant people that God had spoken on more than one occasion in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, there's an example there. Uh, you probably want to write these down. I'm not going to read them through for the sake of time. Deuteronomy chapter 15 is a great story of this time of jubilee, of forgiving of debts. And it's the first time that phrase, no needy among them, was introduced. So even this idea that we're seeing play out here in chapter 4, they are basing it in scriptural truth that they had always attempted to live by. In Isaiah 61, you hear about the year of the Lord's favor. It's a fantastic passage. It talks about freedom for captives. It's full of hope and comfort and joy instead of mourning talks about restoring the places long devastated and the renewal of cities. I don't know about you guys, but that's my prayer for Baltimore. I don't want to be the most dangerous city in America anymore. I don't want to be caught in this devastating hopelessness that has plagued our city particularly communities of color. It's not how God intended it. And we as the church hold the key, but we got to start taking this seriously. Because the only way that happens is through an outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the people of God, his church. And all of that connects back to the story in Genesis 22 when God speaks to Abraham and he tells them that his offspring are going to be a blessing to all nations. So this is just three examples, but all through the Old Testament, there's this idea of God trying to mold and shape his people to be something special, a light, a place of hope, a place of healing, a place of restoration, a place of comfort, a place of joy, because this world and the brokenness that is all over it wants to tear us down, and it wants to destroy things. The evil one wants destruction and despair. But we call on the name of a living God that is greater than those things. He's God Almighty, the maker of heavens and earth. He can heal us. Luke understood how special 
this community was. In fact, he understood it so well that he takes time to go into detail about it. He's telling us almost in repetition that they're gathering regularly, that the Holy Spirit was filling them, that there were miracles and healing and restoration happening. Because Luke needs not only Theophilus, but us today to understand what is happening here is special. It's how God intended for it to be. They were experiencing incredible things, and they were excited about it. God's presence, his power, his love, the absence of fear. All of this was leading them to take humongous leaps of faith. They were selling their backup plans. That that silo that they had stored to prepare them for a rainy day or for famine so that their neighbor, their friend, their family, their church member didn't have to go without. In my perspective, Luke thought that this growing generosity was one of the most impressive examples of what God was doing in this community. He's talking about a covenant community, and he chooses to speak about their generosity as a primary example. Now, I don't know why. Maybe it's because he was there and he understood a little more than I do. But I know for me, Generosity is often shocking because most of the time we're selfish people. And I want to make sure me and mine are taken care of. If I have a little bit of leftover, okay, I'll throw you the scraps. But that's not what was happening here. This is radical generosity. They're selling pieces of land. They're selling homes. They are laying it at the disciples' feet, not telling them what to do with it, giving it up and trusting that God and their leaders were going to do what God and their leaders felt like they were supposed to do with it. Generosity is a logical and fitting response a logical and fitting response to a life of complete trust and dependence on God. If we trust the Lord, then we believe it's all his anyway. And generosity is very easy. Because all I have was given to me. And I believe you're going to continue to give it to me. So I don't need a silo All I need is you. And that's what's happening here. This body of believers so firmly believed and trusted in God that they didn't need backup plans anymore. 
Instead, they were gathering those resources together and challenging one another to live what they claimed. more than just the first fruits of their labor. That's something they had, were already doing. Tithing, um, that idea of bringing the first fruits, uh, it, was, it, it was very common practice. It's something they were already doing. This is above and beyond that. This is radical. It was sacrificial. It was dangerous. They were declaring loudly, with their money and possessions, what sort of community they wanted to be. It's about more than just their money and their possessions. They were doing that with their time as well. They were meeting regularly. They were studying. They were putting themselves in harm's way. All these things were happening because they trusted in God Almighty. So here we have this story. The believers are one in heart and mind. They're giving things away. Luke chooses to give us a, a literal example. He names uh, a man named Joseph, um, who the apostles called Barnabas. Um, this is a character that, if you pay attention over the next few months, you're going to hear his name come back up. I think that was on purpose. I think Luke is wanting to ground this character in the story to give him some some backstory, some depth, because what he's going to do in the future is important. And he wants Theophilus to understand that that man was trustworthy. Right? So he introduces this character of Theophilus. He tells the story of him selling a field that he owned and presenting it to the church And that's the end of Barnabas' story. And then from there, he immediately jumps in in chapter 5 to almost the polar opposite of that in Ananias and Sapphira. Now, I believe Ananias and Sapphira are characters in this story included for a purpose, included because Luke wanted Theophilus to learn from them. In fact, I believe that Luke is already thinking in game with Theophilus, right? He wrote this book on purpose. He I think he has two takeaways, two goals he's trying to accomplish. Number 1, he's trying to convince Theophilus this is all real, right? And he wants him to know it's not a hoax and it's not some kind of feel-good, mushy nonsense. And if you stop with just the good parts, it's really easy to manipulate someone into making a decision or following a course of action because you're promising them the world. But Luke cares more about Theophilus than just tricking him into obedience. He cares about him so much, he says, from the very beginning, I'm going to tell it to you straight, the good and the bad. 
And what we're dealing with here is a most high God, and there are realities to how we approach him. Takeaway number two, he wants to see Theophilus embrace this way of living. And he knows that to fully embrace this way of living, you've got to know what you're getting yourself into. So family, this morning, my confession, all of this, we've got to know what we're getting ourselves into. This is real, and there are consequences when we lie to God. There are consequences when we sin. And family, the reason we don't see healing and restoration is because we don't take those consequences seriously enough. And we walk around claiming the power of God but not living in it. I don't want that anymore. Do you? I don't want it. This is a waste of time if we're not going to take it seriously. And the reason that God was moving miraculously through these people is because they understood and they took it seriously and they confessed to one another and they sought healing and forgiveness and redemption and they found it because it's real. But unfortunately, when we start to tap into that power, and we start to live in that way, then there are very real possibilities because the God of the universe does not take this lightly. And so Luke, here, at the beginning of chapter 5, gives us a warning through two people that took it lightly. The truth is, no one had commanded the early church to give away their possessions. They didn't have to do anything. In fact, they could have chosen to just give part of the sale away. The problem lies in the lie itself. They chose to present it as if it was everything because they wanted more glory, more recognition, Instead of just simply calling it like it was, we sold this field, here's 70%. We kept the other 30 because we felt we needed it. I honestly believe that's all it would have taken, and these two characters would not have died. But we're dealing with a holy God that is so real and so powerful that they tried to twist that and there were consequences. Whether we like it or not, and many of us don't, passages like this where God strikes people dead are really difficult to swallow. The early Christian community without even trying was starting to function like the temple itself. And when we look at stories of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, we see repeat, repeated themes to what happens here. God took his holiness, the Ark of the Covenant, and the temple itself very seriously. And there is more than one example in the Old Testament of people doing things wrong and dying because of it. 
Leviticus chapter 10, Joshua 7, 2 Corinthians, uh, Chronicles 26. Those are just three examples. In fact, tradition was so real around this that the high priest that went into the Holy of Holies in the temple wore bells on his garment. Because if he walked into that room and he was not holy, he was not going to walk out. And so he wore bells on his garment so everyone outside could know he was still moving and still alive. That's how real the holiness of God is. They tied a rope around his waist to drag him out if he died, because if any of them went in to rescue him, they also would have died. And what's happening here, what will happen to us if we take this seriously and we start living the covenant life that God has asked of us is that we will function like the temple of the Most High God and the Lord takes his dwelling place seriously. He is holy, set apart, perfect. And he's asked for us to, do, to be the same. He provided us a way to do that through the blood of his son that washes away our sins. And this body of believers in the early church believed they could be that. And they were doing it. And it was happening. And we're going to continue to read in the rest of of Acts how thousands and thousands of people were flocking to this community because it was that real. And it was that attractive. But it starts with us recognizing how important holiness is among us. And he Wright phrased it like this. If we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to the bullying authorities, makes converts right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking place in the temple, taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. There's no such thing as cheap grace. Grace costs someone something. If you invoke the power of the Holy One, the one who will eventually right all wrongs and sort out all cheating and lying, he may just decide to do some of that work already in advance in you and in me. Holiness, in other words, 
is not optional. It's not optional. And we've made it optional far too long. We allow ourselves to write off our sins and our disobedience as not that big of a deal. I didn't kill someone. I just lied. I was just selfish. It's not a big deal. I just yelled at my wife. It doesn't matter. But it does. I think Luke is addressing the issue of lying in particular because lying does something different than some of our other sins. Lying misuses and abuses the highest faculty we possess. The gift of expressing in clear speech the reality of who we are, what we think, and how we feel. Lying abuses and misuses the gift of expressing in clear speech the reality of who we are, what we think, and how we feel. And I'll add to that actually in this moment. The reality of a living and loving God. Lying is ultimately a declaration that we don't like the world the way it is. And that we're going to pretend that it's something different. More like what we want it to be. And it is literally an expression of our distrust of God. Literally. We want it to be different, so we're going to lie about it. Pretend that it's not what it is. Obviously, lying is not the only sin. It's probably not the only sin that was present in this body of believers. They're humans. They were making mistakes. Many of them were brand new to this Jesus thing. They were babies. They're trying to figure it out, and they were all over the place, theologically and probably even morally. But the spirit that was among them was a recognition that their sin destroyed their holiness. And when your holiness is destroyed, God can't dwell among you. It separates us 
It limits our truthful expression. It blocks our access to his power and his spirit. They were experiencing the fullness of the spirit because they took holiness seriously and they were rooting it out of their lives. Family, we have to do the same or we will never see this city change. We will never live in the fullness of hope and joy and peace that God has promised us. So, whether it's lying or anger or abuse or hatred or selfishness or dissension or idolatry or impurity or envy or any other sin, we've got to trust God enough to say, I don't want this anymore. And we've got to come and confess it to one another and lay it on the altar so God can wash it away and make us new. And I believe when we start to do that, we're going to start seeing miracles among us. And we're going to start caring so much about one another that we make radical steps of faith, like selling off excess. And I believe that if we started doing that, this city will change. Our neighbors will change. Our country will change. This world can change. So I don't know how many of you are still trying to decide if this Jesus thing is real or if it's feel-good nonsense. It's a tough pill to swallow. I get it. I don't know if you have settled on whether there is a God or not. I don't know if you believe it, but you're really struggling to live it out. I don't know where you are, but we're all somewhere on this spectrum. And I believe we've got to look at passages like this and we've got to talk about the reality that God isn't calling us to something that's easy. He's calling us to something that's dangerous. We will be attacked. People are going to misunderstand They're going to judge us. They're going to ridicule us. They're going to persecute us. It's all going to happen if we do this for real. But family, I believe it's worth it. And I want us to live in it. So as we go from here today, as we we leave this place 
as we head to the table to join into this life of sacrificial living that Jesus has called us to. I hope that you'll examine your heart. I hope that you'll start maybe with something easy, with a friend or a neighbor or a significant other. Go to them and tell them you're sorry. Confess. Start by restoring a relationship that's most important to you. And trust that the Lord can heal. So as we, as we step from here, we're going to step into a time of communion. And I want to challenge us today. We're talking about holiness. And the scriptures talk about this discipline that we do every week here. They talk about how important it is. And they talk about how we shouldn't take it lightly. So this morning... If you claim the name of Jesus, this table is for you. It's a physical reminder of us of what God has done for us and what he is calling us to. If you don't know Jesus, maybe you can spend this time praying for the first time and asking God if this is real asking him to show you but what I would love for us to do is the band's going to come up they're going to sing we're going to do a couple more songs we're going to have an opportunity to walk to these tables not alone but with someone else because we're in this together We're going to read the sentences that are on the uh, pages in, in the picture frames to, to one another out loud. We're going to remind each other. But before we get out of our chairs, perhaps this morning, we start by bowing our heads and our hearts before the God Almighty and examining whether we've taken this holiness thing seriously. And if we haven't, let's start there. Let's start by confessing to the Lord. There are pads near the, the tables, some up here near the cross. Maybe you need to spend a minute on your knees begging for forgiveness. Maybe you need to spend a minute praying with the person next to you. Or maybe you've already done that. You came to church this morning prepared to celebrate the forgiveness that God had showered upon you. That's what this table represents. So this, this morning, we're going to bow our heads. We're going to pray. We're going to begin this process of examination and we're going to conclude that process of examination with a celebration that Jesus paid it all.
And we get to live in that. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we are bowing our heads saying we believe in you and to help us with our unbelief. God, I know that there are so many things we get wrong and so many ways that we misunderstand and so much about our brokenness and our sin that we keep running back to that keep us from you. But Lord, we want to be the early church like the book of Acts. We want to experience your power and your blessings. And so, Lord, may it start here. May it start in this moment. May it start with me. So, God, I ask that you would speak to us. I ask that you would speak to my friends. I ask that those that are struggling would hear your voice. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.